Okay, hi. Today is day four that I am live streaming my podcast, The Airy and the Air Show, live here on Facebook amidst what are proving to be quite interesting times in humanity, no? And I want to kind of just give you my thoughts, some things that I'm seeing, some things that I'm noticing in people, some deep inquiries that I have around what's going on in general, and just some funny like experiences that I've been having amidst all of this change, right? So, you know in the zombie movies, like the zombie apocalypse movies, the hero, he always like, he's always well-armed, right? He's well-armed, he has really good aim, he also has a backpack, and the backpack has all kinds of little knickknacks in his backpack that are very specific to his situation, you know? He's also very cautious, like, he's like, he definitely doesn't go in there after dark, and he definitely doesn't, like, let those things come close to him. He also, like, has little tricks up his sleeve and in little knack-knacks in his backpack that help him avoid the virus, and he's he's experienced he's experienced and he's cautious and he's so good at keeping himself healthy amidst the zombie apocalypse that he's living in right well i find myself not to be the hero and old habits dying hard here so the other day i'm just walking i'm i'm outside walking and a guy two people jog past me and right as he jogs past me i recognize him as this guy that I haven't seen in years who were friends. And so, oh, hey, what's up? And instantly we just hug and we're like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I told him, well, you look healthy enough to hug, apparently. And <laughs> I thought that was funny. <sighs> and it's like, you know, I'm not well versed at living in some fucking environment where I have to really consciously mind my own sterility like germ theory has become more a part of my life than it has ever been and even here at home just in general for my entire adult life I have ran my kitchen on what I call camp sanitation that basically you, you rinse it off and it's fine and also I am exceedingly physical and affectionate to my friends and the people that I'm around. I'm a hugger and a kisser. And I have for a long time said that I don't really care if you're sick. I, I just have always just trusted my own immunity that like if I can eat squid off of the the street vendors in Shanghai and eat street tacos off the streets of Mexico, then your cold is not going to get me sick. Don't, don't you worry. Okay. And so now I'm having to like integrate some kind of level of germ theory into my life that I'm just really, first of all, I'm uncomfortable with it. I hate it because in general, I just want to hug and kiss everyone. Yesterday I went to my brother's house and I'm like, Hey, my brother. I was like, uh, I was like, Oh, I walked in and my brother's girlfriend was like, hey, Arian gave me a hug. And I was like, just before I, it even like 
registers in my mind, I'm just like hugging someone, right? So it's like, it's like the hero in the zombie story who's like, who's so good at keeping himself safe from the fucking plague is like so not me. And I'm sure that you guys are having a similar experience where this whole like germ theory being a really integral part of your life is, is taking some time to integrate, right? Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but that's kind of my experience. Hold on one second. Just got to plug the phone in, bro. Just got to plug the phone in. Got to move the phone to plug it in. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of been my experience the last couple of days is just the visceral realization that I'm actually not the hero from the zombie movies and I'm actually having, it's, it's difficult for me to, to change my habits from being hugging and affectionate to having to keep some kind of germ theory in my awareness as I interact in the outside world as I go. Yesterday I went paragliding, you know, and I'm like, hey, my best friend. And I was like, I, I threw snowballs. I was like, hey, this is like our, our high five from afar. I'll just hit you with a snowball or land it right in your boot in the instance yesterday. But I think that you guys are probably having a similar experience as you try to you know, like you go to the grocery store, you're like, what can I touch? And like, when you get, I brought my groceries home and I was like, wait a second, I'm pretty sure I need to like sanitize all of my groceries now. And then like, God knows, like, it's just like, it's just a really interesting change in my life. And I really have a lot of like disdain for it. I don't, I don't like it. Like, I don't like it. I'm physical and affectionate and I want to touch and hug and, and like, those are the things that I do. That's how I am. I'm very loving and affectionate physical person. And so having to like, be like, Hey friend, stay away from me is kind of strange. Right. But I'm also integrating a sense of this idea. And this kind of is a good segue into one of the first things that I'm noticing here in society and especially in social media on in people's opinions is that I'm kind of embodying this idea of assuming that I am actually the carrier of the virus, right? I'm 31 years old. I'm healthy as a horse. And a couple of weeks ago, I had an Italian house guest here at my house for a week. Seriously. Like he wrote me, he's a good friend of mine. He lives in the Dolomites. And he, he's also healthy as a horse, like couldn't get the guy sick. He's a legendary base jumper. And he writes me and says, oh, Ari, I want to come. I'm going to come to the States for three months, but I don't know if I can fly with this whole coronavirus thing. And I said, oh, you know, this was before it was even in my awareness, which is another kind of topic and the thread that we'll see going through this whole thing. I was like, oh, no, I'm sure it's fine. That's just the media. It's not going to be a big deal, right? And sure enough, he flew without incident and arrived to my house and he's a cook and we cook and eat and rock climb and high line and, you know, live our lives. And then I kind of got like a little sore throat and a little like ear infection. I was like, I don't know what that is. I think I was just tired because I had been riding mountain bikes with Adam Craig, which if you Google who Adam Craig is as an Olympian mountain biker, he's hard to keep up with. And it makes me very tired. (laughs) And anyway, I, I was just kind of tired and feeling run down. And so I just attributed it to that. But 
right after that, I went and cat skied at Mount Bailey, where you're like in this little cubicle on a, in a snow cat driving up the mountain five times a day with 12 other people. And I'm like, looking back, I'm like, no, maybe I am a carrier of the coronavirus and I've infected all of my friends that I've seen since my Italian house guest, house guest left the house. And so this is kind of a segue into like the first thing that I'm seeing is that essentially there is this attitude that swirls around that could be described as like a selfishness or a uh, position that I'm not going to get sick. And this whole thing is like a big hype and people are overreacting and there are, you know, I think that you could make the case either way. I think that as the more and more information comes out, I think that what we're trying to do by collectively mitigating our transmission rate by individual through individual action is cautious, right? It's to see what happened in Italy, to see what happened in China, to see what happened in South Korea, and to say, okay, like the only way to take action on this thing which is, this is a really interesting point. The only way to act in the face of epidemic is to act at a time where it seems reactionary and like, like overreacting, right? That is to say that the only time you can act collectively to contain an epidemic is before it's killing everyone, right? Or before the hospitals are overrun. If you wait until people you know have coronavirus, then you've waited too long to take collective action, right? So the only way to take collective action in the face of epidemic is to do it at a time that it seems reactionary. It seems fearful. Because the numbers right now are so low that people are like, oh, like, you know, there's 15 cases in, in Central Oregon or whatever. Maybe there's 30 cases in Central Oregon. You're like, there's a lot of us in Central Oregon. The numbers are so low that are we really like closing down the schools when no one I know has coronavirus? And that's a interesting, like, it's a like a mental bias. It's a cognitive bias that we have that leads us to think that when we're taking action, when we can't viscerally understand the time implications, then like those are the only times that we can actually act. And this whole thing has really brought up a lot of questions for me and a lot of people. I know that a lot of people are kind of like seeing through the veil of the fragility of our systems, right? Like a lot of people are talking about the financial system right now because as people can't go to work, they can't pay rent. And if they don't pay their rent, then the landlords are going to pay their mortgage. And if they don't pay their mortgages, then all the banks are going to have to just hold on to that debt. And what, like, that's a tumbling snowball effect of its own, right? And it's interesting because this is kind of like, you know, there's this cognitive bias that we have to the rate at which this thing is accelerating, right? Because in general, it's kind of slow, right? Like, I don't know anyone who's gotten sick and had to go to the hospital with coronavirus. I don't know if you have, but in general, most of us don't know anyone who has gone to the hospital sick with coronavirus. And because of that, because we have this 
this ethereal and nebulous threat to us. And it's also like on a kind of a not that like it's definitely a, a relatively fast time frame in some regards, but it's also kind of slow in other regards, right? Like as we are on day three or four or six or whatever it is of like knowing that we need to like stay home and kind of change our routines. We're also like trying to stop something that could happen four weeks from now, right? Or two months from now, which is an interesting concept to have to be dealing with. And it's very analogous to global warming, right? Climate change in general is something that we're looking at and we're like, hey, like maybe, you know, obviously we can't know the future, but the way things are going and they have gone, maybe like in the next seven to 10 to 20 years, we kind of like need to take collective action now so that in 20 years we don't end up in some kind of mass death or mass suffering scenario, right? So it then brings up the question for me of like, how do we determine what is important? How do we determine collectively what is an imminent threat? How can we distill that in our information ecology in which we live right now, which is broken as fuck, it is polluted and poisoned, where no one knows what to actually believe because the government and the media have been so abused for so long that you are so right in being skeptical of the CDC. You are so right in being skeptical of the World Health Organization and the fucking local government, right? Like you are so right in being skeptical of that. But if we actually collectively have some kind of existential threat that is in our faces, how the fuck do we know that? How do we distill the truth in that? And also, furthermore, once we've decided that we do have some kind of existential threat, how do we take action collectively? How do we get the point across that, hey, we should all do this? And what do we do with the outliers who are people who are like, fuck this, it's not important. It's like, you guys are overreacting. I'm going to live my life. You can't tell me what to do, right? Which is a unique like it's a it's an interesting cultural case study because I've been to China and they are incredibly obedient to their government and the government is huge and tyrannical and has just been so gigantic for so long that you can't imagine a Chinese person trying to dissent against the government. Where here in America, especially here in rural Oregon, we are like I got my fucking guns I got my car. I got my four wheelers. Like, fuck the government. You cannot tell me what to do. Right? But the same people who don't want to be told what to do, they're not crazy. They're not idiots. They are part of the information ecology that we're all in. And they're not sure what the fuck to believe, man. Ah, oh, my God. And so culturally, we have this like freedom baked into our cores like i have this rebellious and like free nature that is just like a part of who i am and so if the government's like 
Ari, stay inside. My first reaction is, fuck you. You can't make me, right? But then, like, as I dive deeper and deeper and dig into, like, the realities, I'm like, okay, maybe this thing, like, maybe at this point I should stay inside and I should also encourage other people to stay inside and try to, like, nip this thing in the bud in a sense. But I think we're kind of behind the bud. Like, the flower is kind of opening. We're like, ah, that's kind of a bad flower. We don't want that one. Like, fucking cut it out however we can. And so it's like... What do we do there? Like, literally, we are running into, like, the beautiful part of American culture that is based on the individual and freedom. We are literally finding the crux of freedom and collective action. But I truly believe, like, I've been an anarchist for a long time. Like, I truly believe that you can't govern people through violence. You can't threaten people with violence to enforce your laws or your tax system or these kind of things. I think that is immoral at its very root. I don't think you can hit your kids. I don't think you can hit your girlfriend morally to keep her in a relationship with you. I don't think you can hit your kid to make him obey you. I think that's all totally immoral and evil. And so on a grander scale, I don't think that the government can enforce laws with violence without explicit consent. And this is kind of a rabbit hole and we can talk more about this later, but it has really made me question my own belief in that or not necessarily question my belief in anarchy, but more broadly, like, okay, in a anarchic system where we don't use violence to enforce our rules on other people, then how do we take collective action when it really matters? Like right now, like I think we all know that collective action right now is important. And collective action and collective sense-making, I would say, hinges, hinges on our information ecology. And the problem that we're seeing right now is that our information ecology has been shit in, pissed on for so long. It has, like, it is something that should be sacred in a free society, right? Like, the truth is literally something we should hold up on a huge pedestal and be like, the truth is something that we can't let people distort for their use of commercialism to sell things to people for political gain to get them to vote for each other and all these kinds of things right but our information ecology has not been sacred and so we basically are in a position where no one knows what to believe at a time where it's so critical that we all have a similar knowledge and understanding at the baseline, not necessarily saying that we all need to believe and have the exact same opinion on the, on the matter, but like we all need to have some way to kind of be drinking from clean information, right? Because without that ability to like garner information in a way that is trustworthy. The only way for us to take collective action is for us to put our faith in some kind of bigger entity 
like the government that we know historically 100% of the time, every single time goes through this cycle of being small and working for the people and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then tipping over the scales and becoming tyrannical, killing a bunch of people and then starting over, right? Like if you looked at history at all, you just know that it's just like this cycle of government getting bigger and bigger, starting with the people's consent and then at some point tipping and going against the people, enslaving them, murdering them and coming back, right? That's Nazis. That's the Soviets. That's the Khmer Rouge. That's like even just the story of America and breaking off from England and blah, 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 right? So without a clean information ecology, we are forced to offload our cognitive overhead onto some other entity. And as we've seen in history, that is incredibly dangerous, It's something that we have to ponder. And I think that I'm like invigorated right now. I'm like motivated to like talk about these things. These are things I've been talking about for a really long time, but never have they been so applicable. Never have they been like, never have you guys been on such fertile mental soil for these seeds of thought to land, right? Never have the veils been so thin and we're like we're like looking through the veils and we're like holy shit our fucking financial system is on the brink of collapse and maybe it always has been oh man whoa whoa fiat currency is fucked up man man whoa man like whoa what if we can't pay rent and then the landlords can't pay mortgages and then the mortgages default on the banks and the banks collapse and what if oh my god like Holy shit. And then you're like, oh my God, what what if jobs and money and grocery stores all like kind of go away? Holy fuck, how do we feed ourselves? The veils are thin right now, folks. The veils are really thin right now in all of our systems. So it's like, <laughs> what do we do? What do we do? This is something that we have to ask ourselves on an individual level. Lacey asks, how do we protect the truth? It seems inherent that humanity will always try to bend the truth. And my answer to that is fairly simple. It's something that I've talked about in the last couple of podcasts. It is essentially that you up-level, upgrade, up-regulate your own sovereignty, your own discernment, and your own integrity, right? Your ability to distill the truth from myriad sources of information— And then align your words, actions, and commitments to be in line with your best possible discernment. And then through your best possible discernment, you then lift up other people that you can see in the outside world who are using their best possible discernment and supporting other people in growing, up-leveling, up-regulating their discernment, right? This is how we change society at large. And I think that To answer how do we protect the truth, we also have to address why, from a motivational standpoint, we bend the truth, right? Because at the foundation of how we interact as a society, as a community, as a country, as a global species, we have these motivational toolkits, okay? And for 15,000 years... We have been using win-lose dynamics where I will compete with 
you for some scarce resource that is out there and I will get it so that I can have it. But if I get it, that means that you can't have it, right? And so as time goes on, we are seeing that these win-lose dynamics that have worked in some regard to bring us to 7.4 billion people at the highest quality of life that humanity has ever seen, they are about to tip over or tipped over a number of decades ago and are spilling out that they really won't solve the problems that we're facing, right? And if you want to hear me go totally off the deep end about how those systems are implemented and how the problems we actually are facing are not being met, my last podcast is literally called Humanity's Real Problems, and we kind of go into depth about that. But to protect the truth, we have to have a clean information ecology and we have to address our motivational toolkits, right? And competitive, dualistic, win-lose, zero-sum dynamics are at the root of the poisoned information ecology, okay? So those are things that we have to address. It's a very interesting conversation. So glad you guys are all here watching. So the next thing that I want that I've been seeing a lot of, and I've been scrolling Facebook way more than I usually do, and I'm like, as like a commenter, I'm, I'm I'm watching you. I am watching you guys, and I am not impressed with some of your responses. <laughs> I'm impressed with other people's responses, but there are a number of conspiracy theories coming out as to what the fuck is going on, which conspiracy theories in general are a consequence of a polluted, poisoned, and broken information ecology. People don't know what to believe. The government lies to its people just pretty much nonstop. We all know that the planes didn't take down the Twin Towers and the authoritarian fallout of that was like probably behind it. But there are some conspiracy theories that I'm seeing. One is that this whole thing is a hoax and that there is actually no threat. And the cognitive biases that are being used to support that that there's no threat are two. And I've talked about these in depth in my previous podcast. Check them out. One is the numbers and our inability to viscerally understand exponential growth. We like people say, oh, there's only 33 cases of coronavirus in Oregon and there's millions of us who live here. So there's really got to be no threat, right? That's a cognitive bias with your misunderstanding of how exponential growth works. Two is the pretty fatal and insidious comparison of coronavirus to the common flu, which it seems that I think that you can make a case both ways. One is that, yes, for a lot of people who get coronavirus, it is actually not much worse than the common flu. But two, it seems that the cases are kind of coming out that that's really not the case. Like there are a lot of instances where this is vastly worse than the common seasonal flu. And it's like, you know, there's healthy 35 year old strong men who are going into, you know, respiratory um, arrest because of 
the coronavirus, which is pretty uncommon with the seasonal flu. But that is an insidious comparison that doesn't take into account what I have been talking about for three days now as the meta crisis, right? The healthcare system being overrun by too many people just coming in because they're sick, right? Like if you, if you just go to the hospital normally in the seasonal flu, like you get some antibiotics, they kind of watch you for a couple hours and they send you home, right? But like if we have a huge amount of people doing that all in a really short period of time, it's a different issue. And if we have a bunch of people who can't go to work at Fred Myers, then Fred Myers closes down. And if Fred Myers closes down, I'm fucked. And if the people can't go to work, then they can't pay their rent. And if they can't pay their rent, then they can't pay the mortgage. And the mortgage goes on to the bank. And the bank goes on to the financial system and the Federal Reserve. And then the fucking snowball. So the idea that this is merely a public health crisis is a fucking very short-sighted, very myopic, very, I dare to say ignorant and certainly uninformed way to look at this. Because I think that, yes, there is a case to be made that this thing is not, like, I'm not going to die from this. Like, you're probably not going to die from this. Like, the vast majority of us won't die from this. Even our, even our elderly people, like, there's a lot of people that'll fight us off. But... There are bigger things that could possibly snowball here, right? And we're kind of, although we're not at the total inception, we are still in a position where we can take collective action to limit our exposure to the potential risks of the meta crisis that we're talking about. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier in this podcast of the only time to act in the face of epidemic is when the action seems ridiculous. It's like, no, I don't know anyone who's sick. Why are we closing the schools down? But that is a cognitive bias. And it leads me to my next thing here. I'm going to get back to some of the conspiracy theories that I think about, but a little seg- a little uh, tangent here is that is that the only time we can act is when it's kind of like seemingly early. And I don't necessarily think that we are like perfectly timed and that no one is like, I don't think we're nipping it in the bud. I think the flower is kind of opening up and we're trying to do what we can. I fucking forgot my point. Here we go back to the conspiracy theories. (laughs) Um, The other conspiracy theories that I've read on the internet are things like it's a biochemical warfare and the government is behind it. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I, my mental bandwidth right now is taken up with trying to distill like the objective realities, like what is actually happening as opposed to the motivations behind it. I am deeply sympathetic for those of us who are concerned with the motivations and the possible implications of the government or the Chinese government, or the media, or the world at large, or the reptilian overlords that run our country, who, like, like you're right to be suspicious of the motivations behind what is going on right now. But I would also, <clears throat> just in my own mind, I'm trying to divorce 
the ideas of like the motivations behind it so that I can actually take time and cognitive bandwidth to understand what's actually objectively happening and what is my best course of action and and what is our best collective course of action. And I'm taking a lot of time and energy as you see. I'm doing a lot of podcasting and a lot of trying to disseminate this kind of nuanced thinking so that we can all not have answers. I'm not trying to just dole out answers here. I'm just trying to dole out maybe some better questions that we can be asking in this time because obviously crisis precipitates change and which way we go from here is a big question, right? We've got a lot of kinetic energy and things are about to move around pretty significantly. And if we could steer down towards a path towards freedom and equanimity, that would be much um, preferred to suffering, disaster, crisis, and collapse, right? So if you think that I'm that my mission here is something that you want to support, then please donate to sh- support my podcast and the show at paypal.me slash air in the air. really appreciate your support. So I'm sympathetic of the people who are like conspiracy theorizing for the motivations behind what is going on. And I also think that that's entirely in the realm of possibility that the governments, the world governments are using some kind of biochemical crises to garner more control or collapse the financial system. But I don't necessarily want to spend cognitive bandwidth right now talking or thinking about that because one can't fucking know, right? Can't know. I don't know how I would know that. And two, I got kind of bigger fish to fry on like how I operate in the world as it is currently developing and how we should collectively operate, how, what questions are best to ask right now. That's kind of what I'm focusing on. So as sympathetic as I am, I'm not quite going there right now. I also think that the other conspiracy theory of the government is going to use this to impose martial law, to take away our freedoms, to mandate vaccines, to crash the economy. I think this is actually a very real threat. This is one of the parts of the meta crisis that I laid out in the first Facebook Live I did just two days ago or three days ago. You should t- check it out. It's on my podcast. And the issue, this aspect of the meta crisis is essentially this. I'll lay it out. If we look at things like the attacks of 9-11, the government tends to take opportunity to have its agendas forwarded. I think we all know that. And the types of mandates that we are likely to see in the upcoming days or weeks. As you may have seen, San Francisco Bay Area, there are six counties in the Bay Area right now that are under what they call a shelter-in-place mandate, which means like you need to stay where you are. There is travel bans on everything that is non-necessary and They're basically like the government is now saying you could be fined or, you know, whatever for breaking these rules. Although the sheriff is saying these are public health 
things and we're not trying to turn it into a criminal justice issue, right? Which is good now. Like that's a good thing to hear now, but could devolve, right? So the reality is that if you look at history, things like the government growing in times of crisis are habit. That is a habit that has been habit for a long time, right? When the government needs to step in to mandate all businesses and bars in Central Oregon need to close down, that's like a really big step for a government from where we currently are, right? In China, it's a smaller step because they have a tyrannic, a huge overlord of a government. We're here, we're kind of like free-spirited people who, although we live under what is a gigantic federal government, it's still kind of a stretch for the government to come into Central Oregon and say, hey, bars and restaurants, you're closed. No events over 25 people, blah, blah, all these things, like personal liberties of how you can travel and where you go. All these things are like beginning to, we're seeing there's like an infringement on those. And which again brings up the question of like, if the government wasn't there to do it, then how would we do it in a different system? Like what is our best way to have collective sense-making, collective decision-making, and to take collective action when we actually have some kind of imposing threat to humanity? Like what is the best way that we do that? Right. I don't, I, I'm personally against the guns of the government of cops coming in and saying, Hey man, get like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. But like, if we don't have that, then what do we do? It's a huge question and something that we really, as a species, need to look at because, like I said, we have a lot of kinetic energy right now and we are going to go through changes and which way we go and how well we glide and how soft we land is something that is like of utmost importance and is going to determine how much suffering exists in our country, like in a very real way. Right. And it's like kind of a scary and kind of a heavy implication, but it's also something that I want to instill in you possibility and positivity because literally crises are things that precipitate change and in a lot of ways, we have the power to push and sway the change one way or the other. So asking the right questions right now, like asking the question, the foundational question of like, what is good decision-making? What are, what do good decisions look like? And how would we know when a good decision is made both individually and collectively? Like that's a really important question, right? How would it look like if we were to get clean drinking water of information because we all know that our well of information right now is riddled with shit and piss and and politics and commercialism and corporatism and blah 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 right and everyone's personal spin and all this stuff but yes authoritarianism is a fear in the meta crisis it is definitely in there and it is definitely real and I am as a long time anti-government believer that's a part of the whole thing that I worry about 
There's also this thing right now that is becoming increasingly more important to talk about, to think about, is that if people can't go to work, they can't pay their rent, they can't buy food, they can't, right, like the fallout of that. Like the fact is that 70% of America lives paycheck to paycheck. 70% of America lives paycheck to paycheck. So if we imagine quarantining ourselves for eight weeks, you can imagine that that would pretty much fuck our economy. Which leads you to the question of why is our economy so fragile? Why with just two months of a healthy quarantine, why does that crash our system? Why is our system fragile? Why is a fiat currency based on ever-increasing debt fragile? And that's a really good deep dive that every American, every citizen of the world should know. That is something that you should understand. Why is fiat currency fragile? Why does that open ourselves to a spear that could totally take us out at any given time? And how do we as a country, as a people, implement systems that are more robust, more resilient, that are anti-fragile, right? These are things I kind of deep dive on my podcast that is titled Humanity's Real Problems. I just live streamed that on Facebook a couple days ago. Check it out. Check it out. If you think that this information is novel, if you think that this kind of conversation is really needed right now, then support this show, paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate your donations, okay? It's really helpful to keep this whole thing going, folks. Okay, but as I was saying, there is this like snowball effect of people not being able to work and make money. There is huge talk, and I'll just give you one example. I saw on Facebook today this guy that lives in Bend, who will remain unnamed. His name rhymes with eight ith. And he said, just put a rent freeze, like just mandate that landlords don't have to pay mortgage, you know, like don't have to pay their mortgages for a month. The banks can take it. And I thought that the idea of a universal basic income of like giving everyone a thousand dollars this month or freezing the rent saying, oh no, like you don't have to pay rent this month is like not overly obvious. That's not overly obvious that it's a bad idea. But it has unseen and unknowable consequences that are worth considering because there is deep potential there for that cure to actually be poison, right? You can imagine that if we gave every American citizen $1,000 that the incurred debt on the fiat currency system that we have already acknowledged is delicately fragile, it's a house of cards, could shake the table and make certain things fall down, right? So the idea that a UBI giving everyone a thousand bucks this month or telling people they don't have to pay rent this month is not obvious that it's a bad idea. 
Okay. But it's not obvious that it's a good idea. And it's a snowball that is on a steep fucking hill, man. It's on a steep fucking hill. And our entire village is at the bottom of that hill. Okay. <laughs> like if you understand how much of our world leans up on our house of cards, fiat currency system, it's like, yeah, we should be cautious to poke at that, to shake that table, right? It's not obvious that it's a bad idea, but it's not obvious that it's a good idea, and it has unseen, unknowable effects that tumble downhill towards our little village of peace and quiet, right? So these are all <laughs> pretty big ideas. For some reason, Facebook took down the post that I posted that I thought was the best thing I had found on the internet. It was written by a guy, Jordan Greenhall, who I have close personal ties to, and I trust his sense making in a really deep way. I'm going to repost that today. I encourage you to have more conversations and to really shake the table of what you think you understand and what you think you know in our system. If you think that Bernie is the answer, then maybe what's Bernie going to do when we have a global pandemic? And how do we take collective action? What is good collective sense-making? These are really big questions, and they're really, really important. Okay, That is why I am motivated. I am so intrigued. Some people are like, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that. Like I'm trying to not talk about it right now, Ari. And I'm like, not me. I'm interested. This is super interesting. We're in weird ass, interesting times. And as I've said, we have crazy amounts of kinetic energy in our society right now. We are on the brink of change and the which way the snowball rolls down, whether it misses our village or lands in the town square as the base of the best fucking snowman we've ever built is yet to be seen. And how do we build a really good snowman out of this tumbling snowball of meta crisis is something that I'm very interested in talking about. And I want this to be a conversation. So leave your thoughts in the comments below, share this video, share this podcast. And if the things that I'm talking about resonate with you and are worth spreading, please consider donating at paypal.me slash airy in the air. I appreciate it. I'm trying to keep this show going and ad free. I appreciate you guys tuning in. We will see you tomorrow. I'll be back here on Facebook live with the latest developments. I know we're all interested. We'll see you next time. Thanks for being here.